This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. We will begin on page 863, and the Bible's there in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Luke 6, 37 through 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, really glad to be with you uh, this morning. We have been for the last month or so, uh, looking at Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 6, often called the Sermon on the Plain, uh, from reference to the beginning of the chapter where it says that this teaching was given on a level place, on a, on a plain versus a mount. And uh, Jesus is talking uh, about the kingdom of God here. He says God's kingdom is not just a reshuffling of values of the present world, but rather a complete reversal a complete inversion of the values of the present world. And in our section that we uh, get to today that Donna just read to us, Jesus is beginning now to take aim at some of the religious leaders of his day. Earlier in chapter 6, he's been challenged by the scribes and the Pharisees, and now Jesus fires back. And he does so using a few humorous, even absurd Metaphors, And just to get you in the right frame of mind for understanding these things this morning, I want you just in your imagination to go way back with me in television history, all the way back to the 1990s. <laughs> I hate that that's really far back for some of you, but uh, to Seinfeld. All right, now this isn't a, it's on Netflix, so it's not a totally antiquated uh, reference, okay? Uh, but Seinfeld, one episode... Uh, George Costanza, Jerry Seinfeld's best friend, is in a health club locker room. He just gets out of the shower. He has only a towel around his waist. And a man who is obviously blind needs some help navigating through the locker room, right? There's stuff all over the floor and gym bags everywhere. And so it's a difficult thing to navigate through. George kindly gives him his arm. The other man is also only in a towel. But there's a problem here. George's new glasses have been stolen and he himself can barely see anything. But George is in complete denial about this. 
he proudly insists that if he just squints his eyes just enough that he can see 2020. This is a case of the blind leading the blind, right? Well, before George can get the other man to his locker, he thinks he sees across uh, the health club uh, the glasses thief absconding away. And so he tears off across the, guy, the, the health club, pulling this other gentleman with him. They exit out a side entrance, like an emergency exit, and they find themselves, of course, there's no glasses thief out there, but they find themselves both just in towels on a busy New York City sidewalk, door locked behind them. But it gets worse, because George then thinks he sees Jerry's girlfriend across the street kissing another man. It's not Jerry's girlfriend, it's a policewoman, and it's not another man, she's petting like the the horse, you know, the police horse (laughs) that she has. And of course then, the rest of the episode is the hilarity that ensues from these mistakes. It's a silly story about somebody who thinks he can see leading himself and somebody else into disaster. Jesus warns of something similar in our passage. Jesus gives us amusing, even absurd metaphors as a funny delivery system for a way of communicating deadly serious spiritual truth. Jesus gives us something to smile at to offset the pinch Because if we let these teachings really land on us, they cut deep. Jesus renounces all the popular answers to the struggles of God's people. He declares instead a rival vision of the kingdom of God. And he tells those who think they see, they're really and truly blind guides. And so as we walk through this passage this morning, we'll see Jesus saying first, judge not. And then secondly, he says, though, judge not, but be discerning. But then finally, you have to start with yourself. Take the first look at yourself. All right, so let's walk through the text this morning. Jesus says first, judge not. Verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, as I said, Jesus has the Pharisees in mind here. But he's worried that his own disciples may adopt their approach. You know, the content of Jesus' teaching is different than that of the Pharisees and other religious leaders of his day. But he doesn't want his disciples to make the mistake of thinking you could just switch out the content but keep the same ethic, right? Jesus is saying you can't just switch out the content, right? The Pharisees' content for my content, but keep their same methods, keep their same uh, ways of interacting with others. Keep the same judgmentalism, just if you have it more right. Jesus isn't just recalibrating their theology. He's also recalibrating their ethics. And he wants to do away with the severity, the harshness, the smugness that exists. It's not just a first century issue, though, is it? Because this is our struggle, too, is it not? And we are, if we're honest, most of us, anyway, much too quick to judge. I mean, think of all the snap judgments you're tempted to make, right? About people who like cats more than dogs, or put pineapple on their pizza, or cheer for the Steelers, right? I'm I'm confessing, this is my own personal confessional here, I guess. But more seriously, right? Think of uh, all the belittling judgments we're tempted to make of each other. 
And think also how in our culture today, at least, we've elevated those belittling judgments actually into a virtue. You're better for making those judgments, we say, right? And they're, they're rightly not just corrected, but condemned. You know, not long ago, I remember it was difficult to actually get people to believe that there was such a thing as truth. When I was in campus ministry, not, again, not too long ago, when tolerance was the ethic of the day, it was, it was difficult. What we were worried about mostly was trying to get people to believe there was such a thing as right and wrong. There was such a thing as truth. But I actually don't think that's our problem anymore, or at least not our biggest problem. Today, by and large, people do believe in right and wrong, and generally speaking, they're 100% confident that their side is right, and 100% confident that the other side is wrong. And not only are they wrong, they're deserving of swift and severe judgment and condemnation. Look no further than the political discourse in our country. In the last few election cycles, there seems to be a shift from, you know, vote for our candidate, he's, he's the best, or vote, you know, vote for this candidate, she has the best policies, to something much more apocalyptic and dark. Elect our party so we can protect you from the evil monsters on the other side. A friend of mine noted he didn't really hear many candidate proposals or even commercials talking about fixing problems so much as demonizing opponents. The message seemed to be, vote for me in order to punish the other guys. Now, how different was John Wesley's counsel to his church during a particularly contentious election in his day? He said this, he said, I urge people to vote for those they judge most worthy and to speak no evil against the person they voted against, and take care that their spirits are not sharpened against people who voted on the other side. These are kind of, this is scandalous words these days, I think. I bet you if I were to post that on Facebook, within an hour, I'd get 20 comments, at least, of exceptions that people could think of. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, you don't realize how bad these other folks are. Politics may be the easiest target, but it's just one symptom of a vastly bigger disease. Parenting styles, school choices, the clothes you wear, the books you read, the people that you hang out with. We judge and attack in ways that belittle others and we judge with a kind of scrutiny and censoriousness we would never want applied to ourselves. And this happens inside and outside the church. We need help. And Jesus speaks into our condition. He gives us a fresh view of the posture we can take toward one another and toward our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our classmates and our city, even toward those who we think are dead wrong. Jesus says first, we should be characterized by mercy because God is merciful. You know, our passage, the whole thing flows out of what Jesus has just said in the verse before. Luke 6, 36. It was the last verse from Mike's passage last week. Jesus says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to be merciful. Why? Well, because part of what you are tasked with is showing the world what God is like. And God is merciful. And so show the world that in the way that you extend mercy and love toward others. And just to break down the teaching here a bit, Jesus gives us two prohibitions and two exhortations. 
Right? He's saying, what, what does it mean to be merciful? Two prohibitions, two exhortations. Two prohibitions, judge not and condemn not. And two exhortations, forgive and give. So there's things to weed out and there's things to plant into your life, right? We are to weed out, as we look at ourselves and do our own self-examination, we're to be weeding out judgmentalism and condemnation, and we're to be sowing in, planting seeds in our life of forgiveness and generosity. And then Jesus gives us a little illustration. He says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, Running over, now that can sound a little vague to us, but everybody in the first century would know exactly what he's talking about. Pictures of a grain seller in the market, measuring out what you're buying. And this is a a generous grain seller. He's generous to you, and so he measures out the grain, however much you had asked for. He fills it up, and then he presses it down, shakes it, and then he adds more on top of it until it overflows. I guess maybe the modern equivalent would be you go to your favorite place and you get a really generous pour of wine. Or maybe even better, you go to the Creamy Whip and you order a small. (laughs) But they give you 10 inches of ice cream on top of that cone, right? Jesus says to his disciples, you're to be like that. Full to the brim with forgiveness and generosity and mercy for others. Why? Because that's what God is like. That's what your Father in heaven is like. Show the world his mercy. And that's reason enough, but Jesus goes on. He gives us a second reason. He says, number two, the, the measure we use for others is the measure that will be used for us. Verse 37 again. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And then he concludes, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, on the one hand, this is exceedingly practical advice, right? He's saying if you're harsh in your judgments of other people, well, then guess what? They're going to return the favor to you. On the other hand, the flip side, the positive side, is if you're gracious and patient and forgiving to the people in your life, well, guess what? People are going to be slow to condemn you. So this is true, practically speaking, in your relationships here and now. But it's also true in the cosmic sense, in the divine sense. Francis Schaeffer used to call these verses the invisible tape recorder. He said, imagine you have an invisible tape recorder around your neck all the time. And it records all the things you say about the way that other people ought to be living and the things you don't think they should be doing, the things you wish they were doing, right? It records all of that. Actually, you don't have to think too much. Like maybe our cell phones are even doing that now, right? Like now that we're learning all those kind of things. But imagine, okay, for the sake of the illustration, it's recording your phone or your tape recorder, whatever. It's recording not just everything you say in judgment of others, but it also captures somehow your attitudes and your disposition toward the people around you. And then Schaefer says, all right, it's judgment day, and God comes to you, and he takes the tape recorder off your neck, and he says, I am going to be 100% completely fair to you. I am just going to judge you based on the standard you used to judge everybody else around you. Schaefer said, what would happen? He says, not a person in history 
would be able to stand. Everyone would be condemned by their own words, by their own standard. Now, to be clear, when Jesus says, judge not, he's not saying you should never make moral judgments. He's not saying you shouldn't form opinions. He's not saying you should never challenge someone or admonish someone. He's not saying that you shouldn't use discernment. How do we know that? Well, I mean, Jesus had moral judgments, right? He made them. He challenged people. He admonished people. He rebuked people. And he encouraged his disciples to do the same. What Jesus is going after here is a censorious spirit. He's going after a judgmental heart. Later in Luke chapter 18, it says Jesus is challenging those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. George Carlin, the uh, comedian, said that this judgmental heart, the censorious spirit, human nature, really comes out when you're on the highway, doesn't it? He says, you ever notice that when anybody who's driving slower than you is an idiot, And everybody who's driving faster than you is a maniac, right? (laughs) That's actually really perceptive. Because a judgmental heart, a censorious spirit, you know what it does? It makes you the standard by which everybody else is judged. And anybody who deviates one way or another is a sinner deserving judgment and condemnation, right? Now, Carlin goes on to observe that everybody that you think, everybody else is doing this as well, right? You're in your car judging, they're in their car judging. So everybody you think is an idiot thinks you're a maniac. (laughs) Everybody you think is a maniac thinks you're an idiot, but so on. Now, of course, you have to make moral judgments, but the issue is standard, frequency, and motive. Standard, right? Uh, Again, making yourself the arbiter of all right and wrong. By the way, how'd you get that job, right? Who gave you that lofty position to become the arbiter of all right and wrong. The second part is frequency. How often do you find yourself scrutinizing others? If it's a lot, and if this is like a part-time job for you, then this teaching is for you. If you're always scrutinizing others, if you find yourself sort of ready to pounce, looking for someone to mess up, screening other people's social media to find their transgressions, Jesus is saying, no one has deputized you to do that. You're not the morality police. There is a judge, and you're not him. And finally, motive. A discerning spirit is constructive. It builds people up. A judgmental spirit is destructive. Tears people down, right? Even when we use the word like a building, to condemn a building, what do we mean? It means it needs to be torn down, right? To be in condemnation is tearing down. A discerning spirit is constructive. A judgmental spirit is destructive. I heard a girl once telling a story, a girl, a woman once, telling a story about being late for school. She was a teacher. She was already kind of freaking out. Her alarm had not gone off. Maybe the power went off in the night. This is the old days where your phone didn't keep up. And so she got up late. She knew she was late. She's hustling, getting everything together. It's the first snow of the year. Her car is covered. She goes out to the driveway. Immediately, she slips on ice and falls. Her papers and books and everything's going over. She gathers it up. She's flustered as can be. She's wet and uncomfortable now because she's fallen in the snow. And she begins to dig her car out. And just at that time, her neighbor is on his back porch looking over the fence with a cup of coffee in his hand, toboggan on his head. And he says, you know... Should have gotten up earlier. (laughs) 
She says, thanks, Brad. I don't know if that was his name. She said that. She was thinking some other things that I can't repeat this morning. But she also was thinking, you know what? I would receive that better. You should have gotten up earlier. I'd receive that advice better if you said that to me while you were over here helping me dig out rather than lobbing it across the fence, right? Constructive is to build up. Destructive tears down. Jesus calls us as citizens of his kingdom to adopt a gracious, loving, and forgiving posture. That's how we show people who God is. It's also what we want for ourselves, if we're honest. And it's what Jesus commands of his disciples. So he says, judge not. Then he says, but be discerning. There's room for discernment, particularly in regards to leaders. And the thing he's cautioning, out here, cautioning us for here is to watch out for blind guides. Verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Jesus is using the catechetical method here, question and answer, teaching. So he's asking a question and he's inviting his uh, hearers to form responses in their mind, right? Can a blind man lead a blind man? Answer, No, George Costanza taught us that, right? Will they not both fall into a pit? Answer, yes, they will. Now, you have to remember, this is ancient Palestine, rugged terrain, pits and potholes everywhere. Actually, a lot like Norwood in that respect. So (laughs) your mind doesn't have to imagine too much. The Pharisees and the other religious leaders prided themselves on being all eyes. They thought they saw so clearly, especially when it came to the sins and the failings of others. Earlier in this chapter, Luke chapter 6, verse 7, says the scribes and the Pharisees, and listen to to that sort of scene language, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They watched him. They scrutinized him. Why? To try to accuse him. They used their eyes, but they didn't see. They looked, but they missed entirely who Jesus is. And later Jesus calls them blind guides because of it. The second image is in verse 40. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Students, even now in our day, right, are often limited by the capacities of their teacher, a coach, a, 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 you know, somebody who teaches you in music, whatever. Sometimes that can be a limiting factor for how far you go, right? That's, was, it's true now in some ways, but think about the first century. Hardly any access to libraries in most places, very limited access to books. There's no internet, no YouTube videos you can look up. Uh, Most people didn't travel far, so you're not getting a lot of different kinds of interactions. Your teacher was the source of your information. So bad teacher almost always results in bad student. And with both of these images, Jesus is saying, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. There are teachers who think they see, but they do not. And John Calvin said, nothing is worse than people who think they see, who in reality are blind, and when in their delusion they make bold to act as leaders and guides for others. 
So be careful who you follow. But the corollary to this, right? Watch out for the blind guides. But the second part of this is beware of becoming one. So we have to be diligent, Jesus is encouraging, uh, to be diligent in our own life so that we can be useful to others. You can't lead the way unless you know where you're going. And the word that Jesus uses for lead in verse 39, can a, a blind man lead a blind man? That's the same word that the Ethiopian man uses in Acts chapter 8. I don't know if you know that story, but this Ethiopian man, he's riding along in his chariot. He's reading from the Old Testament, particularly he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he can't make sense of what this is about, who this is about. And so Philip comes along and he hears this and he says, do you know what you're reading? And the man says, how can I unless somebody guides me? It's the same word, unless somebody leads me. If you want to be a guide, if you want to lead, if you want to influence and help others, you need to make sure that you're growing in your faith, that you're bringing your life, you're laboring to bring your own life under God's word, that you're becoming more and more like your teacher, the teacher, more and more like Jesus. So first, judge not, but be discerning, particularly when it relates to leaders. And then finally, Jesus says, and this is where it gets really personal, he says, take a look at your own life first. Before we correct anyone else, Jesus says, you have to do a little bit of introspection. Verse 41, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's kind of funny, right? I mean, the image that Jesus has given us, the word in Greek for speck is, is um, it's, it's like what you would like uh, dust with, you know, or you, what, what you would get your dust pan and the kinds of things you would sweep up in your house. Uh, in, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, this word for speck is the word that's used in Genesis 8 for what the bird that Noah sends out from the ark brings back, this little leaf, this little bit of a leaf to let the folks on the ark know that the waters are receding. It's a small little thing, in other words. Now, the flip side is the word for log is the word for a load-bearing beam in a house. And when we moved in and remodeled this building, we added a, a, another load-bearing beam under the balcony back there. It was this huge, thick steel beam. It took a lot of folks to carry it in. It was huge. And so the image is of a person with a load-bearing beam coming out of his own eye, scrutinizing, thinking he can look closely and carefully to get a little speck out of somebody else. It's meant to be a humorous image, a ridiculous image, an absurd image. But the hard truth that Jesus is teaching is that slight imperfections in others are often more apparent to us than large imperfections in our own life. Slight imperfections in others are often more apparent to us than large ones in ourselves. You know, the truth is, we're often most judgmental about the things we know are wrong in our own lives. Psychologists, pop psychologists call this projection, right? Something deeply wrong in our own hearts. And so we, we try to avoid the struggle of dealing with our problem by focusing on someone else with a similar issue. Steve Brown said, there's often a correlation between criticism and culpability. And that's, by the way, why Jesus calls this hypocrisy. You hypocrite, he says. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck 
that's in your brother's eye. Now, I do want you to know, there is a place for dealing with specks. I mean, he says it here, right? Then you'll see clearly to take the speck, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So there is a time for that. But Jesus prescribes a pretty clear process for us. What is that process? Get the two by four out of your own eye first, and then, and only then, you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in somebody else. So in other words, before you go on a crusade as a reformer, you need to experience some personal reformation. Before you hold yourself out as a teacher, make sure that you're taught. Before you start to practice as an ophthalmologist, you need to get your own eyes examined. Before you start in on other people, put yourself under the microscope. This is true individually. It's also true collectively as a group. New City Church, we should always be better at confessing our own sins than in decrying the sins of others. We should always, that should flow more easily off our lips, the confession of our own sin, than decrying the sins of others. Part of the way that we will witness to our neighborhood, to our community, to the city, through to the world, is through confession and repentance and humility. It's one of the reasons we practice this. When we come here on Sunday mornings, we confess our sins as part of our, our worship liturgy. We're going to practice that here in a moment, as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper, we should be more easy confessing our own sins than denouncing the sins of others. Some of you know the story of Rosario Butterfield, former Syracuse professor of literature. and She was writing a book about why the evangelical church had been so cruel to the gay community. And she had written an op-ed in a local newspaper and she started to get all kinds of mail in response to this op-ed. And she started to sort the mail. She said it was pretty easy. You had one pile for hate mail and you had one pile for fan mail, right? And everything pretty easily fell into one or the other. But she got this one letter and then eventually a series of letters as a dialogue began from a man named Ken Smith, a Presbyterian minister. And she said she couldn't figure out what pile. She wasn't going to answer it at first, but she couldn't figure out what pile to put it in. It was, it was confounding to her. Because on the one hand, he disagreed with her, but on the other hand, he was respectful and thoughtful and sincere and gentle. He invited her over for dinner with his family, and she went, and she said that within minutes of being there, she thought, oh, crap, we're going to be friends. <laughs> I actually like these people. But not all at once, but over time, Rosario Butterfield got to know Jesus at that dinner table, and later, referencing back to this, this is what she said. She said, when we ate together, Ken Smith prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He repented of his sins in front of me. How about that? The Presbyterian minister repenting of his sins in front of the secular lesbian agnostic professor. We need the ethics of Jesus in a severely judgmental world. We need a fresh vision of how to interact with each other, even how to disagree with each other. In this harsh, competitive world, we need a new vision of what it means to be for one another and our own pride and our own fear. We need a new vision of what it looks like to move toward others in love and forgiveness. This is what Jesus did. He humbled himself 
to the point of being obedient to death on the cross. He absorbed the judgment that should have come to us. He paid it all, in fact. He suffered death that we might have life. He became sin so that we could be free of it and forgiven of it. And then in order set free to be to serve and to love others. And if you know Jesus, right, then you've been rescued from judgment by the unearned grace of God. If that is the dominant thing that describes you, if it's the thing that's written over your life more than anything else, the grace and mercy of God has come to you undeserved, if that's the main thing that's true of you, there's no room then for harsh condemnation of others. What if we could be known, right, in Cincinnati and Norwood as principled people, sure, as ethical people, absolutely. But what if we could be known above all as people who've tasted the grace and the mercy of God and then are eager to show it to others, to extend it to others? May it be so of us. Let's pray towards that end and then we'll come to the Lord's Supper. The band will come up and lead us in a song. And we'll go to the Lord's Supper. But let's pray together. Lord, these are tough words. But oh, how we need them. We pray that we really could become a people so astounded by your love, mercy, and grace that we also would be eager to show it to others. Would you make us quicker to repent of our own sins than scrutinizing others and looking for theirs, would you help us to do the hard work of looking for the logs in our own eyes? And would you also change the tenor of our public conversations, our interactions with others away from harsh judgmentalism and condemnation? Instead, make us overflowing with forgiveness and generosity of spirit. Lord, would you make us a community that models this, a community of hope, a community that could uh, give a picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus is laying out in Luke chapter 6. We pray all this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.